Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Friday, June 10th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why are some people experiencing delayed positive tests from COVID-19? And new tests on the block from expensive at-home hubs to COVID-sniffing dogs. Plus, a proposal in the UK to raise the legal purchase age for cigarettes one year every year. And the newest U.S. quarter has just dropped, featuring Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Wilma Mankiller. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. There's a curious pattern happening with some COVID cases. Maybe you've noticed it in your own family or social circle. A lot of people have been getting negative COVID test results for multiple days in a row, often while symptomatic or following a confirmed exposure, only for a positive result to finally pop up several days in. Now, there are a number of theories for these delayed positives, and while no formal data or research exists on them just yet, Catherine J. Wu, former COVID-19 reporter for The New York Times who holds a PhD in microbiology from Harvard, spoke to a number of experts on the topic for a piece published today in The Atlantic. Now, one potential piece of the puzzle is the unreliability of at-home rapid tests. Conducting a rapid test feels a bit like playing with a chemistry set. You've got to get every step just right or else the results might not be accurate. And of course, every brand is just slightly different enough to trip people up. And even really good tests used in medical settings miss viruses sometimes, says University of Michigan epidemiologist Emily Martin. Rapid tests have always had a greater chance for a false negative because, by design, they aren't as good at detecting small or asymptomatic amounts of the virus compared to a PCR test. Now, whereas a PCR test amplifies a sample of RNA in the lab in order to detect even trace amounts of the virus, a rapid antigen test looks for proteins on the outside of the virus. It only picks up active virus, and so it can be harder to detect asymptomatic cases. 
But in the case of these delayed positives, a lot of people are already at least a little symptomatic while continuing to get negative test results. So that leads to the popular immunity hypothesis. Quoting Wu in The Atlantic, Perhaps symptoms are preceding test positivity less because the virus is peaking late and more because illness is arriving early, thanks to the lightning-fast reflexes of some people's primed immune systems. Sometimes sickness is direct damage from a virus, but a runny nose, muscle and joint aches, chills, fevers, fatigue, which are common across many respiratory infections, can also be signs that the immune system is being activated, says Aubrey Gordon, an infectious disease disease epidemiologist at the University of Michigan. When the pandemic began, infections happened exclusively in people who'd never encountered the coronavirus before. Illness took several days to manifest as the virus churned itself into a frenzy and the immune system struggled to catch up. Once people are vaccinated, though, their immune systems kick in right away, says Emily Landon, an infectious disease physician at the University of Chicago. Prior infection, too, could have an impact. If the body makes fast work of the invader, some people may never end up testing positive, especially on antigen tests. Others may see positives a few days after symptoms start as the virus briefly gains a foothold, end quote. But that wouldn't completely explain it, because some people without any immunity are also experiencing delayed positivity, and some people with immunity are continuing to test positive before experiencing symptoms, like we'd previously expected. So another hypothesis is the changing nature of the virus itself. Quoting again, Any member of the Omicron cohort is just a different beast, says Ryan McNamara, a virologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. It struggles to penetrate deep into the lower airway and may not accumulate to the densities that Delta did in the nose, which could make false negatives more likely. A couple of studies have also found that Omicron may, in some people, be detected in the mouth or throat before the nostrils. In practice, it's really hard to separate if all of this is a property of the virus or a property of the immune system or both, says Roby Bhattacharya, an infectious disease physician at Massachusetts General Hospital. Take Omicron's symptom profile, for instance. This variant seems to more often prompt sneezier, head-cold-esque symptoms than those that came before it, and less often causes loss of taste and smell. And on average, people infected in recent surges have been showing symptoms three days after exposure, far faster than the incubation period of five or six days that was the norm in the pandemic's early days. But those patterns could be attributable to either the peculiarities of the Omicron clan or how much more immune the average Omicron host is, end quote. That the virus's infectious period may have changed with Omicron is slightly concerning considering the CDC and other national agencies changing recommendations for isolating. Many cut the isolation period in half based on data that predated Omicron. Is guidance that people can stop isolating five days after symptoms emerged still the best when many people aren't even testing positive until five days in? Of course, at the same time, isolating for long periods simply isn't sustainable for everyone. You know, not everyone can take that time off work or get access to the many tests required to prove that they're no longer testing positive. Now, we can also consider the possibility that people with delayed positives, so to speak, were actually sick with something else first, 
and got COVID afterwards, or had seasonal allergies and then got COVID, or had seasonal allergies the whole time and accidentally got a false positive, never actually having had COVID at all. There are so many variables when it comes to testing and immunity and symptoms, and as UNC Chapel Hill clinical microbiologist Melissa Miller points out, quote, there are easily five to eight other viruses circulating right now, end quote. So for now, experts advise caution. As Yonatan Grad, who is currently studying the viral dynamics of SARS-CoV-2 at Harvard, put it, if you're symptomatic, just assume you're infectious with something. It may not be COVID, but should you be spreading it around anyways? Or as Martin put it, if you're symptomatic, quote, a negative test shouldn't be a pass to go out, end quote. But what if the tests could actually be better and more reliable? Enter at-home molecular tests, as accurate as PCR tests, as convenient as rapid antigen tests. Here in the U.S., the FDA has approved three different versions from the brands Q Health, Detect, and Lucera Health. Now, the only problem? They are very pricey. For some, you pay for a reusable hub reader device as well as the tests. With Detect, the hub is $39. With Q Health, it's $249. And individual tests can run you between $49 and $75. That is compared to rapid antigen tests that you can buy in packs of two for between $10 and $25, or get a small amount for free from the U.S. government, and I believe even some public libraries have stashes on hand. So, yes, most people are not going to be running out to buy these fancy devices. But some companies are. Google, for example, has provided Q-Health devices for employees returning to the office, and I'm pretty sure this is what I encountered on a film set recently when I was told I was being given a PCR test with results that came back in 30 minutes, and I watched the healthcare worker put the samples into a little tabletop device that looked a bit like these over-the-counter options. And even though these molecular tests are very similar to PCR tests, they aren't strictly the same thing. So they both use amplification to detect pieces of the virus's genetic material in a given sample, but the method of amplification varies. With PCR tests, the equipment has to cycle through higher and lower temperatures over several hours. Now with these other devices, it all happens at the same temperature inside of a small machine. And as The Verge points out in a comprehensive product review of the three FDA-approved devices, even though the upfront cost is higher, because they're returning more accurate results, you could conceivably save money in the long run, particularly in situations where you might be doing a rapid test every 24 hours after an exposure or something, whereas in this case you might only need to do one or two tests. And even though they seem like luxury testing items that will further the accessibility divide, some of the companies say they actually developed them to be more accessible. Lucera and Detect specifically made sure that smartphones and the internet were not required to complete their tests. And given the accuracy, they say it's better to compare the cost to PCR tests, not rapid antigen ones. And in instances in which PCR tests are not covered by insurance or the government, they can cost around 130 you could also maybe get your health insurance to cover one of these devices, but as anyone who has tried to get tests covered by their insurance knows, or really just anyone living in America knows, your mileage may vary greatly on that point. 
As for now, some other nations do not accept these tests as valid proof for travel because they're still self-administered at-home tests, even if they are molecular, so that is another good thing to be aware of. You can check out the Verge link in the show notes if you're curious to learn more about these specific products currently available, but I want to leave you with one final promising COVID test on the horizon, trained dogs. According to a peer-reviewed study published last week in the journal PLOS One, dogs trained to detect COVID-19 were able to do so with more accuracy than PCR tests. They detected COVID in 97% of symptomatic cases and, astonishingly, almost 100% of asymptomatic cases. I remember some talk about training dogs to detect COVID starting fairly early on in the pandemic, so it's fascinating to see how this has developed and been tested. Specifically, these dogs were sniffing samples of human sweat inside of olfaction cones and were able to analyze 20 samples in just 15 seconds. Compared to the PCR tests, which can take days, or even those at-home molecular tests, which take between 30 and 75 minutes. And while this is the first study to compare the results to other forms of testing, there was a study in the UK in May that showed dogs could detect COVID-19 with 82 to 94% accuracy, as well as a study last year in Florida that showed 73 to 93% accuracy. So this latest one is quite high in comparison. And again, these are dogs that have been trained. It's not like some superpower that all dogs have. And most of the dogs already had experience in odor detection, and all of them received several weeks of training on COVID-19 detection specifically. And while some airports and schools around the world have already been using dogs to detect COVID, Dr. Cynthia Otto, director of the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, told The Guardian that we are a long way from implementing canine COVID testing in a way that is broadly safe and scientific. Still, with everything I shared from experts before on the many variables extant around all forms of diagnostic testing, not just for COVID, but in general, it does seem like the more methods you have at your disposal, the better. So bring on the dogs. An independent review commissioned by the UK government has recommended that the country raise the legal age a person can purchase cigarettes each year until effectively no one can buy them. So that would mean that, for example, in 2023, you have to be 19 to buy cigarettes, and then in 2024, you have to be 20 to buy cigarettes. In 2025, you would have to be 21 years old, and on and on and on. Now, this is similar, though a bit more cumbersome, to a policy introduced last year by New Zealand, who plans to ban the sale of cigarettes to anyone born after the year 2008. Both policies effectively aim to create a smoke-free generation, and this is in line with the UK's goals to be smoke-free by 2030, with smoke-free here being defined as less than 5% of the population smoking, and currently it is estimated that about 14% of the UK population are smokers. Again, the recommendation to raise the legal purchase age each year was proposed by an independent review. Ministers in England say that they would take it under consideration as they work on their own report on smoking, with some saying it is unlikely that this element will ever officially become law. But as Reuters points out, matters of public health have been in the spotlight in Britain, where there are rising debates about the cost of their publicly funded healthcare service. And Health Minister Sajid Javid notes that smoking is the single biggest cause of preventable illness and death in the UK. And this is despite the number of deaths falling. 
Even if this particular recommendation doesn't make it into official policy, the government is interested in any kind of new and unique options to help them hit their smoke-free by 2030 goal. At the start of this week, the third quarter in the U.S. Men's American Women Quarters Program was officially released. Wilma Mankiller now joins circulation with Maya Angelou and Dr. Sally Ride and seven more prominent women leaders whose quarters will be released throughout this year and next. Wilma Mankiller was the first woman to head a major Native American tribe, having served as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation from 1985 to 1995. During that time, she improved housing, health care, and education in the Cherokee Nation. The infant mortality rate decreased, employment doubled, tribe enrollment tripled, and according to President Obama in a statement following Mankiller's passing in 2010, quote, she transformed the nation-to-nation relationship between the Cherokee Nation and the federal government, end quote. And quoting from Indian Country Today, current and past tribal leaders, Mankiller's family, friends, and hundreds of others turned out for the release of a limited number of the coins, which feature the late chief wrapped in a traditional shawl with a resolute gaze to the future on the reverse side. Wilma Mankiller demonstrated grit and determination, current Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. said. She fought for justice for Native Americans. She inspired us all to do more to help ourselves as a people. She made this world a better, fairer, and more just place. She did all of this, by the way, before she ever held public office. The Mankiller coin's design includes inscriptions that read Principal Chief and, in the Cherokee language, Cherokee Nation. According to the U.S. Mint, only two other Cherokee Nation citizens, Mary Golda Rose and Sequoia, have coins in their names. End quote. An NPR notes that Mankiller's last name refers to a traditional Cherokee military rank, and Mankiller told NPR herself on Fresh Air in 1993, quote, I'm fairly soft-spoken. And people sort of have an image of what a woman named Mankiller would be like, and I don't think that I really fit their image. And I know it's an unusual name, so I, you know, I'm not defensive or offended by people's reaction to it. She went on to say in that same interview, reflecting on a nearly fatal car accident she'd been in years prior, quote, I think the Cherokee approach to life is being able to continually move forward with kind of a good mind and not focus on the negative things in your life and the negative things that you see around you, but focus on the positive things and try to look at the larger picture and keep moving forward, end quote. There's definitely a little bit of cognitive dissonance with this whole program, especially for some of the women of color and indigenous women having their likenesses put on the back of a coin with George Washington on the front. But it's also still a cool opportunity to talk about these women and remember their achievements. Most of their families and communities seem to be okay with it, welcoming the opportunity to celebrate the lives and legacies of these remarkable women. So if you are in the U.S., keep your eyes peeled for the Wilma Mankiller Quarter, as well as the Sally Ride and Maya Angelou ones. And if you really want to get your hands on them, you can also order a whole bag of them from the U.S. Mint. Link in the show notes. Well, that is going to be it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.